grade one to six, you can go um, with a parent to the gym and then seven and eight, you guys are dismissed as well. So good to see all of you here. So we are turning to Ezra chapter 6 this morning. If you would join me there, hope you have your Bible or your device ready. Uh, Last week, we saw in Ezra chapter 5 that a letter had been written to the king of Persia, to Darius, uh, because the Jews had begun rebuilding the temple again. And uh, so a letter was sent by their enemies, hoping that maybe King Darius would stop the work. And uh, that's where we pick things up here in Ezra chapter 6. So notice verse 1. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ecbatana in the province of Media, and this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices and let its foundation be laid. It is to be 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also the gold and silver articles of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. Now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and uh, boy, these are tough names. You, You see it there. And you other officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree, now this is Darius, He's now giving new decree, a new decree based on what he found in the archives. I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and notice he says, and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. And if for this crime their house is to be made a pile of rubble, May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. There's two things that we want to see accomplished in this series. Number one, we want to see our hearts revived 
with passion for God. And number two, we want our minds to be renewed with the plan of God. Here's what I want to say about Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6 is a little piece of this grand story of redemption that takes, takes up all of history and takes up all of the Bible. God has this grand, uh, wonderful plan of redemption that's being carried out from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned to the very present day. So Ezra chapter 6 is two things. It's a little snapshot of a little tiny piece of, of redemption history. That's what it is. It's just a historical account of something that happened at a moment in God's movement of redemption from Adam and Eve's sin to the present day. But I want to argue that it's also something else. This little snapshot of that little moment in redemption history is also a snapshot that shows us a picture of the whole. You understand what I'm saying? Ezra 6 is both a snapshot of a moment in redemption history and it is a picture of the whole. And I want to show you how that is true. Well, what is redemption history? What is God's plan of redemption? What, where is this all heading? Uh, not only Old Testament history, New Testament history, up to the present day, what, what is God's plan? Well, if we skip ahead to the end of the, of the Bible and read the last chapters, we know exactly what God's plan is, and it's beautifully described here in Revelation 21.3. John writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, that's a wonderful verse, but it does two things takes us all the way back to the beginning where God made a garden with the intention that as he made humanity he would have a people to dwell with on this beautiful creation of the earth but because Adam and Eve sinned do you remember what we've talked about how humanity was meant to live under uh, under the rule of God and under the blessing of God and under with the life of God and when Adam and Eve sinned they stepped out from that in essence they were saying God we don't want to live with you we don't want to live under your blessing and rules. We want to go our own way. And there was this kind of breakup in the family where because God is holy and because humanity had sinned, they could no longer dwell together in harmony and unity. And the redemption story is God getting his people back. And that's the end of the story as we see in this verse, that God is going to dwell among his people. Now, What's happening in the book of Ezra? The Jews, Jewish people have gone back to Jerusalem, a remnant of them at least, to do what? To rebuild the house of God. And what was the point of the house of God in Jerusalem? The point of the house of God was always so that God could dwell in the midst of his people. That was the whole point. And we see this even clearer in history when before they had a temple, they had... What was, this? what was this building? The tabernacle, more like a tent. And this picture beautifully pictures for us the way that this was supposed to work. The tabernacle, the tent of God, set up in the midst of the people. Now this is when the people didn't have a city of Jerusalem and they were camping in the wilderness. But God was in the midst. And he had this dwelling place. And of course, we see what looks like a fence around it. 
And this is the sad reality that when God chooses to dwell with sinners, there's going to be some boundaries. And that's what happened in the Old Testament. There was a tabernacle established. There was this outer court established. These are boundaries. And if you were to go into that court, you could only go to one place, and that was to the altar to offer sacrifices for your sins. And if you were just a regular Jewish person, you would go no further than the altar. You couldn't go into the literal house of God, into that tent. If you were a priest, you could, but you couldn't go into that most holy place at the back of the tent where God's throne was, that holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the dwelling place of God was. Only the high priest could go in, and only once a year, and only with the blood of sacrifice for sin. So there were all of these restrictions, but the beautiful picture here for us is that God wanted to be in the midst of his people, and his people encamped all around him on all four sides of this tabernacle, and God blessed them with this visible expression of his presence, this pillar of cloud that would come down in the daytime, this pillar of fire that was visible at nighttime. What an amazing thing. And later, when David, David's heart was to build a house for God, no longer a tent, David says, I'm, I'm living in a house. It's time for God to live in a house. And God says, your son Solomon will build a house. And Solomon builds an extravagant temple. But we must not lose sight of what it was. It was God's way of dwelling in the midst of his people because that's what he's always wanted to do. Not only was it God's means of dwelling in the midst of his people, but it was his way of providing the propitiation, the sacrifice, the purification for their sins so that they could dwell near him and with him and he with them. So this is the redemption story. And so Ezra 6 not only is a piece of that story when the house of God is being rebuilt so that the Jewish people can return to the land and dwell in the midst of their land with their God, but it's also a picture of the whole where God is wanting to dwell with his people. Now, is it going to be different at the end of the story than it was at least in the Old Testament? Absolutely, it's going to be different. Because Revelation 22 and verse 4 tells us that not only are we going to dwell with God, but we're going to see his face. And all of those boundaries and all of those restrictions and even the altar are gone. And now... We dwell with God face to face. And actually, even though we haven't reached that point in redemption history, which I hope we all long for as our greatest hope and our greatest joy, but we've already experienced face to face because God himself has come to indwell us. Remember when, when Jesus died, what happened at the house of God? The veil was torn that guarded the way so that no one could enter into the very presence of God. And supernaturally, God ripped that curtain from top to bottom to, to, uh, to say, to state for all of us that now we can dwell in the very presence of God. Now by faith, but someday with our very eyes, we will see him. This is God's plan of redemption. I want us to remember, though, that it's not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for a certain class of people or just for God's favorites because Revelation also says of, uh, of that great throng of people um, says of Jesus you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation 
You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. You know, one of the great tragedies in the history of Israel is that they failed to recognize that they were meant to be a missionary nation. Yeah, God was going to live in the midst of them, and he was going to teach them his laws, and he was going to bless them and provide for them. Why? So that as he shone his glory and his face upon them, that that light would go to the nations. You can read that in Psalm 67. You may feel like, well, that's not very clear in the Old Testament. Well, but yes, it is. They were meant to be God's people as a missionary people. And I wonder if sometimes we forget that as followers of Jesus, that it's not just about us and Jesus, and we got our ticket, everything's good. No, it's not good because there's a whole world of people that are lost and without Jesus that aren't part of this, this great promise of redemption. And so it's our job to spread the word. So what is God's plan of redemption? I'm just going to say it simply in this way. God's plan is to redeem human beings from all nations so that he can dwell together with them face to face for all eternity in a renewed creation. God's plan is to redeem human beings. All right, so Ezra 6 is a little snapshot in that whole history of this story, but it's also a picture of the whole. Uh, By the way, I want us to see, I've just talked about how this was for all nations, and I want us to see this in uh, Ezra chapter 6. So, for example, uh, starting in verse 16, uh, we see that the people, um, having finished the temple, began to celebrate. They began to follow the Old Testament commands to remember the Passover and to install the priesthood. Uh, Verse 19, we see them remembering the Passover, celebrating that important memorial feast. And then notice verse 21. The Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, that's the Passover, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. What does that mean? It means that there was two groups of people celebrating the Passover, and in a sense, two that had become one. One group was was that remnant of the Jewish people who'd come back from Babylon to rebuild the house of God. The other group were people from their neighborhood, people who were not purely Jewish by race, who had come to believe in the God of Israel. So do you see what was happening? The very fact that God had blessed his people and allowed them to return to the land and given them the success to rebuild this house and given them the blessing and the, uh, the affirmation of the Persian Empire, all of this was a testimony that spoke loudly to other people from other nations. And so notice what it says here. They, they renounced the ways, the unclean practices of those foreign peoples, their false gods, their false religion. And now they have joined themselves to the Jewish people so that they could seek Yahweh, the God of Israel, and obey him. You see the beautiful picture of redemption here? That it's not just for the Jewish people. It's for all. It's for all nations. This is God's plan of redemption. All right, so that's the plan. That's God's plan of redemption. Now I want us to see in the story, God's, I'm going to call it God's program because I'm got, I got stuck on P words today, so bear with me. God's program. In other words, how is God setting out 
to fulfill his plan of redemption? What is the program he's using? What are the means by which he is going to fulfill his plan of redemption? Well, here's the first one. Providence. Now, when I say providence, I'm actually talking about what we just sang about, the idea that God is sovereign, that he is in control of all things. So let's think about this. Notice in this story, we have a letter sent to King Darius questioning whether there really had been a decree that allowed the Jewish people to rebuild the temple. Did Cyrus really say that? The letter was written in such a way that it was somewhat neutral, and Darius's reaction to this letter was very sincere, and I would say very noble. He says, okay, well, let's look. Let's, let's look in the treasury. Let's look and see if we can find anything in the archives that says that Cyrus gave permission for the rebuilding of the temple. Well, so first of all, just Darius's attitude towards this is somewhat shocking, just as it had been for Sarias, or for Sarias. <clears throat> Too much Advil this morning. Um, Cyrus, there's tough names, right? Yeah, you can laugh, but you couldn't say them any better than I can. So. <clears throat> we saw how Cyrus had given this decree for the temple to re be, re be rebuilt, and we, we thought, well, that's crazy. Why would a foreign king do that? And now we see Darius having a favorable attitude towards the Jewish people. And he says, okay, let's look. Let's see if it's in the archives. And then it says, verse 2, the scroll that had this memorandum from Cyrus was found not in Babylon, where they thought they'd find it, but in a citadel of uh, Ecbatana in the province of Media, which is fairly distant from Babylon. So who found it? How did they find it there? How did the librarian in the province of Media know to even look for it? How did this all happen? I'll tell you how it happened. It happened by the providence of God. That he was moving in the background. He was pulling strings and making things happen and causing people to find what they needed to find and giving a favorable reactions and favorable responses to these things. So somehow... In a place they weren't even looking, they find the scroll that has Cyrus's decree and they bring it to King Darius. Notice again, it it's just a reminder of how incredible uh, Cyrus's uh, initial decree was. Notice some of the things he'd said. We get more detail here than we saw uh, back in chapter uh, 1. He says, let the temple be rebuilt. Let its foundations be laid. Gives the dimension, 60 cubits high, 60 wide. Three courses of large stones, one of timbers. And then the costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. What? So Cyrus is just saying, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for it. Amazing. Sends back the gold and silver articles that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem. And now in verse 6, we see Darius, his response. They found Cyrus's decree, now... Darius is going to give his, um, his judgment on all of this. And so he speaks to Tatanai, the governor of the trans-Euphrates, and you know I'm not going to say the other name. And you other officials in that province, he says, stay away from there. Remember we saw in chapter 4, these were the enemies of the Jewish people. These were the people who didn't want to see the temple rebuilt. They didn't want to see the Jewish people have a home and have a place. But Darius is saying, get out of there. Don't interfere with this work. 
let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house. And then notice, verse 8, this is shocking and unbelievable. A decree that you are to do for these elders of the Jews, here's what you should do for the construction of the house of God. Expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury, repeats what Cyrus had said. Remember, this is Darius's money. In a sense, it's his personal bank account. This is his wealth, uh, his empire, his coffers. Let it be paid out of the royal treasury so the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, bulls, rams, lambs, wheat, salt, wine, oil, whatever is requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given them daily without fail. And then, verse 11, this somber warning, if you defy this edict, you're going to be impaled on a pole and he calls it a crime. For this crime, your house will be made a pile of rubble. And then he says at the end of verse 12, I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Folks, do you see the, do you see the hand of God in this? This doesn't make any sense. Why would a foreign pagan God, with all of this power and all of this wealth, show favor to this tiny remnant of Jewish people so that they could go back and build a temple to their God? Darius not a Jew. He's, he's not a worshiper of Yahweh. He's a pagan God. What do we see here? We see the hand of God, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God moving. And there are times in world history and there are times in our own lives and there's times when we pray for someone that we want to see be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and we wonder, where is God? Why isn't He moving and working in the way that I'm praying that He would and we just have to trust that he is, that he is at work, that he's pulling strings, that he is in control of all these things. Then notice verse 13, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, the governor, the trans-Euphrates, these other leaders, their associates, carried it out with diligence, yeah, because they got threatened with that pole thing. Of course they did. But even more, it just seems like they just went the extra mile to provide everything that was, was required. It's amazing. It's the providence of God. Well, that's the first thing. What else does God use to bring about his plan? Well, the second thing, the obvious thing, is that God uses his people. In other words, God's people are not only the recipients of his redemptive work, which we all say, amen, I'm so thankful that Jesus died for me. I'm so thankful that I can be saved. But then we know that God turns to us as his people and says, okay, now come with me. Work with me here. I'm giving you now the privilege and the opportunity to be a worker of redemption. Did God need a remnant to go back and rebuild his house? The God who spoke the universe into existence. Did he need the Jewish people to go and do that? Did he need Cyrus to make a decree? Did he need Darius to agree to this and give from his royal treasury? The answer is no. He didn't need any of those things. He could have made a much more beautiful, much larger, uh, a fantastic temple if he would have done it himself. And yet he said, I want you to build. I want you to build my house. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 14, the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching 
of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. God uses his people in his program of redemption. What that means is that we don't just sit here this morning as the recipients of redemption, which I hope you are. We are here as the foot soldiers in the program of redemption, the laborers. And we recognize the the wonder of that, the privilege of that. I've shared this before, but I'm always amazed when Jesus in the Gospels encounters a person who's demon-possessed, and the demon speaks through that individual and says, I know who you are. And Jesus says, kids are gone. Shut up. That's not for you to announce who I am. And whose privilege is it to announce who Jesus is and tell people the good news? Not the demons, the people of God. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. So we come and gather as a church family, not just to celebrate and be reminded that we are the recipients of redemption. Praise God. We've sung about that today. But we come week to week to be reminded that we are God's workers building his house and his kingdom in this world. I find it quite interesting what Darius said, by the way. Uh, And I stopped and made note of this. This is verse 10 now. Darius giving his own orders now and telling the governors across the uh, Euphrates there, you need to do all these things for the Jewish people. And then he gives a little selfish comment here in verse 10 as to why he wanted all of this to happen. He says, So that they, the Jewish people, may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. This is part of the work of God's people. I find this fascinating. So it's possible, because I, I try to rack my brain, wrap my brain around, like why would Darius be so favorable? And it's not because he was a believer in Yahweh. Remember, this is a, a culture uh, that was polytheistic. They believed in many gods. That's why Darius can talk about the God of heaven or the God of Jerusalem. It's not that he only believes in that God. He's got his own God, and other peoples have their gods. I wonder if what Darius is actually doing selfishly, what he's doing here, is he's trying to appease the gods of various people. Remember, a few weeks ago, I showed you a picture of the Cyrus Cylinder. Remember that? It was a historical artifact that describes how Cyrus was favorable, not just to the Jewish people. In fact, it doesn't even mention the Jewish people, but how he was favorable to other peoples and allowed them to practice their religion. And it's possible that the philosophy that these Persian kings took on was, if we can keep all of the gods happy, then we will stay in power. Why make the gods angry? Because we might lose our throne. But if we can keep all of the gods happy, then no god from no other nation will ever conquer us because we've done, we've done good to them. I suspect That's what was behind Cyrus and Darius and these crazy orders that they've made. And I wonder if we see a little glimpse of this. It's it's like, okay, Darius is, uh, I'm going to give you all this. I'm going to let you build your temple, but you've got to pray for me. 
You've got to pray for, my, for, for me and my sons, which means that he's saying, I want my throne, I, I want my children to reign on my throne. I, I want to stay, I want my family to stay in power. I, I think there was a selfish motive for him, and yet he's not so far off, is he? It's interesting what Paul writes in the New Testament about this very thing, about praying for people in authority. I urge then, first of all, he writes, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, and then he gets specific, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. We're living in a moment where there's all kinds of things being said and done in our country and towards our government. And I realize in our congregation we've got lots of different opinions on that. Brothers and sisters, I simply would ask that we seek the Word of God to guide us in whatever our response is and that we let this verse speak deeply to us. Are we angry? We should pray. Are we supportive? We should pray. Whatever it is, we should pray. Why? So that we may, and this is what we pray for, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives. Why? Because the redemption story depends on our behavior as the people of God. It matters how we live. It matters how we behave. This is good and pleases God, our Savior. There's another thing that the people of God do, and it's, it's kind of an outcome of, of all that happens. Notice verse 16, the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. We see that theme later, how the people were joyful right at the end of the chapter. Seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. Joy in redemption is a crucial part of what it means to be the people of God. Now, this, this stings for me a little bit because by nature I'm kind of melancholy and when I'm tired and when I'm in pain, I can easily be melancholy, meaning I, I just don't exude a lot of joy. It's one of the ways that God has given me a spouse to try and remind me of this and encourage me in this. To smile. Have I smiled this morning? Trying. Joy in redemption. Peter wrote that we should live our lives in such a way that people would ask us about the hope that we have. You don't get asked that question if you never smile and you never show any joy in who you are and what God has done for you. But when we live with that joyful exuberance with a gratitude towards God, with a happiness that flows out of us because of all that God has done for us then. Our witness is powerful. This is God's program of redemption. He's using His providence, His sovereignty. He's pulling strings behind the scenes. Secondly, He's using His people. But then there's a third thing that we see in our story. And we see the emphasis here on the reestablishment of the priesthood. Find that in uh, verses 16, right down through the end. 
There's the reestablishment of the priesthood. Verse 18, they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites who were the temple servants in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem. So there's a reestablishment of the priesthood. Of course, in Old Testament days, the priests were that uh, religious figure who stood between God and the Jewish people. They offered sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. They taught the people on behalf of God. There was the reestablishment of the Passover, that memorial feast that remembered when God, by his redemptive power, brought the people out of Egypt, even as he brought judgment upon the Egyptians. And then propitiation, which is just a big theological word that speaks to us about what these sacrifices were. And on, on that day of dedication, how they offered uh, sacrifices of worship and thanksgiving, but also sin offerings, 12 sin offerings for the 12 tribes of Israel, these 12 male goats in verse 17, which reminds us of the sacrificial system. God could only dwell in the midst of his people, even with these restrictions, if blood was offered to atone for their sins. And so we see the reestablishment of all of this. And of course, we know from the New Testament that all of these things uh, are simple pictures of someone who was to come. Jesus, who would be the great high priest. Jesus, who would be the ultimate lamb of God, lamb of sacrifice. Jesus, who would ultimately be the propitiation, not for our sins, but 1 John says, for the whole world. This is God's program of redemption. Priests, Passover, Propitiation. Do you see how this is just a, a little picture of the whole? But I want to finish, and I pointed this out as I read it. Verse 11, this very somber and grotesque warning Darius gives. I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. Do you see anything prophetic in that? Darius, who's not a Jewish king, who knows nothing of God's plan of redemption, doesn't realize the part that he's playing, has no inclination that Jesus was coming and that Jesus would suffer. But what I find so ironic in this solemn warning that Darius issues is that there was someone who got impaled on a pole, so to speak. And it was Jesus. How ironic that in this solemn warning of Darius about someone standing in the way of God's redemptive plan, God, someone standing in the way of the rebuilding of God's house, someone standing in the way of God dwelling with his people. You do that, you hang on a pole. The one who ended up, the only one I know of who ended up hanging on, on the pole was Jesus. When we were the ones who stood in the way. When we were the ones who said we will not dwell with God. We were the ones who said not his rule but ours. We were the ones who said his blessing isn't good enough, we'll look for our own. We were the ones who stood in the way of God dwelling with his people. But Jesus took the pole 
And that's God's plan of redemption. That's His program of redemption. It's only because Jesus took the pull that someday we will dwell in the very presence of God face to face because He took our punishment. We're going to sing and uh, bring these thoughts to a conclusion as we sing, and then I'll come again and close the service.